Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Six days before the transfiguration of the Lord, Peter made his famous confession of faith in the district of Caesarea Philippi to the north of Galilee and in very pagan territory. It was then that Jesus first attempted to explain to his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He said these things to them very plainly, which is to say he didn't sugarcoat the reality that was about to overtake them like a massive wave from the ocean comes crashing down like thunder on a child's sandcastle. Peter especially railed against this grim prophetic word from the Lord, but Jesus was resolute, certain of his mission and his purpose, which was to give his life as a ransom for many. So things were going to be different now going forward. After this first of three predictions of his miserable death, the Lord's demeanor seems a, a little more tense and his mood at times seems almost morose as his steps toward Jerusalem suffer a stronger gravity, though destiny will by no means slow his progress toward the dark and foreboding abyss that would soon devour him whole. Jesus was and is human, of course, and therefore no stranger to dread and the natural inclination to recoil from evil and unleashed violence. There was certainly nothing about that first Good Friday that was good for him. There was certainly nothing about that black day that was desirable to him, but it was coming. And rather than run from it like Jonah, Jesus walked toward it, ready and willing to do his holy work for the salvation of sinners everywhere. But before the journey toward the cross was resumed, the Lord ascended an unnamed mountain in a location undisclosed to discuss the divine plan with Moses and Elijah, two of the most fascinating and mesmerizing characters of the entire biblical saga. It is understood, of course, that Moses represents the law of God and Elijah represents the prophetic word of God. Both Moses and Elijah each exhibited tremendous power from God in their respective ministries, and both suffered mightily for their unfailing devotion to God and lives of total service and dedication to him. It is interesting in the extreme, and I give my sons credit for helping me to see it, and it was pointed out to them by profs at the seminary in Fort Wayne last summer 
that in the stories of both Moses and Elijah, there are profound encounters with the living God at the top of Mount Horeb in the Sinai Peninsula. We are perfectly aware of that, of course. <clears throat> but even though Moses precedes Elijah by about six or 700 years, and Elijah precedes the birth of Jesus by a similar amount of time, is it possible that by entering into the mystique of the mountaintop, they each were present to the same eternal now with their feet of clay, yet grounded in their own respective times. In other words, when Moses interacted with God at Sinai in Exodus 34, and Elijah likewise experienced the awesome presence of God in 1 Kings 19 on that same mountain, did they enter into a kind of holy timelessness whereby standing there with them was Jesus of Nazareth and that their three mountaintop experiences were all really one and the same. Naturally, we tend to think of Moses and Elijah at the Transfiguration <coughs> being there with Jesus long after their earthly lives had come to a close. But perhaps it occurred within the actual context of their own respective times, though the three holy men were separated literally by hundreds of years. Add to that the simple omission of one detail in all four New Testament accounts of the transfiguration, not one of them, not one, tells us which mountain Jesus actually ascended. There are two mountains in Israel that have been the traditional candidates for the location of the transfiguration. The first is Mount Tabor, which is a lonely looking mountain, very high and very majestic, standing largely on the southeastern slopes of the Jezreel Valley, not far at all from Galilee. It takes quite a while by bus to ascend the mountain, which is very steep and somewhat harrowing. Nevertheless, at the top of Mount Tabor today is the Church of the Transfiguration, which is quite awesome. Some of us from Shepherd of the Hills were there together a few years ago and we celebrated Holy Communion in the Chapel of Moses. We loved it. The other chief candidate is Mount Hermon, far to the north of Galilee. This snow-capped wonder is considered a strong possibility because Matthew and Mark's accounts of the Transfiguration have Jesus in that general area already when six days earlier, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God at Caesarea Philippi. Luke, on the other hand, has Jesus more in the area of Galilee in Mount Tabor for Peter's confession. Nevertheless, 
It clearly is not the will of God that we should know with certainty which mountain it was, which means all we can do is speculate. And as long as we are speculating, why should we exclude Sinai, otherwise known as Horeb, as a strong third candidate for the holy mountain on which the Lord was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And if we were to do that, how much cleaner would our theory be that the Holy Bible itself is drawing us into a marvelous understanding of the transcendent realm of God hovering over and governing our normal experience of time, which by comparison could be easily swallowed up like a pill by the much larger eternal now that serves as backdrop to our feeble and finite earthly context. In this way, we might even consider our earthly sojourns are like what our catechisms say about Holy Communion, that Christ is in, with, and under the bread and wine. In similar fashion, the kingdom of heaven, with all its mystery and all its promises, with all its splendor and with all its healing graces, is in, with, and under us at all times and places which means though we dwell in this harsh environment, grace and salvation have already claimed us and that the destiny God intends for us is already made manifest, though we are not yet enabled to see and perceive it, not so long as our mortal substance is clad in this muddy vesture of decay but if we allow for some extraordinary considerations grounded, of course, in faith and divine revelation, if we meditate deeply enough on what it means to belong to God who dwells in our midst but is not subject to the confinements imposed on us by earthly time, then we might likewise begin to see by faith that the suffering we must endure this side of death is already coded in a glory that remains veiled apart from faith. Could this be what St. Paul meant when he wrote, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed? Here is what I'm trying to say. It is perfectly human and natural that we should be sad for those who we have lost, or homesick for the comforts of heaven, or anxious for the renewal of our aging, sickly flesh. But at the same time, because timelessness is the substance I am speaking of, we are already united to those who have gone before us. We are already bathing in divine light, we are already standing before the throne of grace, and we are already caught up in the Lord's long-promised second coming, and we are already sharing in the resurrection of all flesh, though the limitations of earthly time 
forbid our full experience of these things just yet. But once we become subject to the great equalizer, once our souls separate from our bodies, which then decompose, perhaps it is at that exact moment in time, the ora motris nostri, we experience what is the supreme and objective purpose of all things in the universe, which is total fulfillment through communion with God. How happy and wondrous a thing it would be to realize upon seeing our Lord's human face in his eternal kingdom, our baptism and our resurrection on the last day, those separated by time in this earthly context were really just one event indissolubly joined by grace in the eternal now. As the great and very admired German Lutheran theologian of the 20th century, Hermann Sace wrote, God views us in baptism as people who have already died and been raised, put to death with his beloved son on Golgotha and raised from the dead on Easter morning. If that should be the case, then how shall it impact the manner in which we hang upon the cross next to Jesus on Good Friday? And please do not misunderstand me. I would never throw worthless platitudes at you and suggest that your suffering can be minimized by having a good attitude. Joel Olstein and other false prophets of our day may encourage you to think like that, but I never will. Suffering is a very sobering reality indeed and highly characteristic of the human experience, to be sure. Jesus himself took no pleasure in his suffering, though in his divine person he was infinite in nature and able to transcend time and space as we know and experience these things. But the stages of his humiliation are such that though he was divine and infinite, he allowed himself to be subject to our linear limitations and enduring the worst of what the sinful world could conjure, entered into his suffering always with an eye for the reward encoded therein. This is what I think the Lord meant when he said in John 16, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And so as we will embark together on our Lenten journeys this Wednesday, we are essentially descending the mountain 
alongside Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, of course. And let us be sobered by these discomforting words from Hebrews 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. There at the base of the mountain, we are again engaged in a world full of very complex drama, heaps of demoralizing bombast, and the soul-crushing aches of sin and shame. But for our sake and for the sake of our patient endurance, through the rigors of Good Friday, a glimpse of something far superior to the fragile, transient nature of this world is granted us through the eyewitnesses of the Lord's eternal glory. There in the mysterious high country, there on a mountaintop unknown, far higher than the low-hanging clouds, three extraordinary men of different times in history, one of whom was the Son of God himself, stood together, deeply aware of the cross looming on the horizon, but wrapped nonetheless in the light of immortality and eternal glory. For the cross is an invention of this world, but grace and salvation come from above. And so as the perfect segue, as we descend the mountain and enter into our Lenten journeys this week, I close with these words also taken from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, <clears throat> for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Keep your, heart, <coughs> your hearts and your minds in the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.